I hope you had a chance to read Genesis 37 through 50 this week. We're going to be looking particularly at chapters 39 and 40 this morning. God's writing a story, the, the, the best story ever. It's a multi-layered, exciting, and sometimes terrifying story about the rescue and restoration of a conquered world. He outlined the plot before the foundation of the world was laid. And from the very beginning, he wrote his own son into the story as hero and savior. In fact, the arrival of his son is the pivotal moment in the whole sprawling epic. His son is the word that he wrote into the story, the word that became flesh, the word that holds the whole thing together. But God had a problem. In fact, he has a problem. See, as an author... God made a choice at the very beginning of this project. He decided that whenever he writes a character into his story, he will literally give that character a life of his or her own. That decision was, at least from our perspective, very risky, very messy, letting characters have a life of their own and make choices with real consequences even allows them to defy the author's intentions. The characters God wrote into his great story have sabotaged the storyline repeatedly, either by their character or their conduct. Adam and Eve tried to rewrite the theme of the great story. They thought the theme ought to be one of human autonomy and even apotheosis. Abraham, the lead character in the part of the story we've been looking at, lost patience, and he and his wife decided to take the manuscript into their own hands and write an alternate ending. And so it goes. Isaac and Rebekah's selfish parenting choices almost put an end to the story. And Jacob, I mean, where do you start with Jacob? He is flawed in so many ways. He's deceitful, cowardly, greedy, bitter, and yet the author has planned a key role for him to play in bringing the storyline to its fulfillment. To us, it seems like the author's decision to give his characters a life of their own was a mistake. But he staunchly refuses to reverse it. And so he has to continually rescue his storyline from his own characters. Yet he's absolutely faithful to himself and his storyline. That is, to the promises he's made. Even though those promises are continually put at risk. Can the author make the story come out right in spite of his character's failures? Is he skilled enough to do that? Or will he just throw away the draft of the story and start a new one? Now let me ask a related question. Can the author take his story in the right direction in spite of your failures or the failures of the people around you? Can he tell the story that he wants to tell, the story of restoration and joy, the story of triumph, of good over evil, of God over his adversaries, of resurrection over death, even though things are happening in your life that he never intended to be a part of his story? See, in a sense, the story of Joseph is our story. It's a story of obstacles and failures from within and from without. But in another sense, it's God's story. 
can God take what Jacob brings to the story or foists on the story and incorporate it into the plot without giving up his plan? Can he write the story around Joseph's brothers' sin and selfishness and pride and still make it come out right? The answer to that question is important to us because if he can do that, then he can take the things that you and I bring into the story, good and bad, and make it work according to his purpose. Now, one more thing before we jump into the story of Joseph. Even if God can take the sinful and stupid things his characters do and make them serve his storyline, even if he's that good, what his characters choose to do still makes a difference. For example, both Judas Iscariot and John the Apostle end up serving God's storyline. There's nothing either of them could do to prevent it. But who wouldn't rather serve God as John than as Judas? St. Paul says, in a large house, there are articles of not only of gold and silver, but also of wood and clay. Some are for noble purpose and some for ignoble. If a man cleanses himself from the latter, he'll be an instrument for noble purposes, made holy, useful to the master, and prepared to do any good work. The choices we make as characters in this story will not exclude us from the story, but they will determine whether the author uses us for noble purposes or ignoble. Our choices really do make a difference. Joseph made good choices. There are some that are questionable, but he turned things around. He made good choices in spite of the way he was raised. You know, he'd been elevated to a position of prestige and power before he was ready for it, and that can ruin a person. I mean, he could have been uh, an ancient Justin Bieber, but he was saved from all that in, in the most unexpected way. He was kidnapped and sold into slavery by human traffickers. And to make matters worse, the human traffickers were his half-brothers. Last week, we left Joseph on the slave block, where he was bought by the captain of the king's guard, who was a high-ranking official, uh, uh, who had, among other responsibilities, the responsibility of overseeing the facility where political prisoners were held. Joseph on the slave block in Egypt is totally disoriented. He's a country boy, and he's now in this huge city. The social customs are entirely different from what he knew growing up, and he's in constant danger of doing something stupid, something that will offend his superiors. He couldn't speak a word of Egyptian, so he was never sure if he was understanding his orders correctly. He couldn't read hieroglyphics. He couldn't read the more common hieratic form of writing. At first, he was assigned menial tasks by some upper-level household slave, maybe one who knew a Semitic language. But Joseph did those tasks, and he did them well. So it wasn't long before he was given more responsibility. And the number of people who recognized his potential began to grow. At some point, even Potiphar noticed how this young slave managed to get things done. The way the Bible puts it is that God was with Joseph. Now, that's something you can count on. When God writes you into the story, even into scenes filled with conflict, even if you don't know he's with you, he'll be with you. And if you determine to be with him, to live his storyline rather than your own, as Joseph did, it's likely that you'll come to know and rely on God's presence with you. 
Joseph rose through the ranks as a slave. Over time, and he had plenty of time, he learned to speak Egyptian, to read hieroglyphics, to write in hieratic. He gradually came to understand what his boss was looking for, what he really wanted, and he learned to anticipate what he needed to accomplish his goals. Joseph was assigned increasingly more significant tasks, which he performed efficiently and effectively. And then one day, Potiphar called him into his office and told him he was going to be promoted to chief of staff. By the way, our idea of slavery from the our American past is very different from slavery here. Slaves did some of the most important work in Egypt at the time. Joseph was given his own apartment in the main house, and he was put in charge of all of his master's affairs. He ordered the supplies, he hired the staff, he fired the staff, he paid the bills, he handled investments. With Joseph in charge, Potiphar was able to spend more time working at his job and less time worrying about his personal affairs, including his personal finances. The only thing he thought twice about was the supper menu. And even that improved dramatically after Joseph took control. Now, Joseph was in charge of the household. And Potiphar's wife took an interest in him. He is a strikingly handsome young man. And she was a lonely, profoundly needy woman. So after a while, this is verse 7, chapter 39... She took notice of Joseph and said, come to bed with me. Now, when you read that, you have to believe this was not the first time Mrs. Potiphar had seduced some young slave. She was a cougar. She was on the prowl. She wanted someone to make her feel good about herself. And Joseph, she thought, was just the person to do that. But he refused Though unlike her, he was tactful about it. He said, look, with me here, my master doesn't give a second thought to anything. He's put me in charge of everything he owns. He treats me as an equal. The only thing he hasn't turned over to me is you. You're his wife, after all. How could I violate his trust and sin against God? Now, you'd think that would have put an end to it. It did not. The text says she pastored him day after day. For her, this was a game. It was a game she enjoyed playing and that she fully expected to win. She always won. But he refused to go to bed with her or even be with her. Of course, she knew he was avoiding her. That was obvious. And probably it was obvious to the entire household staff who knew her well. And it annoyed her. It wasn't like she, he was her first guy and he wasn't going to be her last. But she found that she was no longer thinking, I want him. She was thinking, what's wrong with me? And that unsettled her. One day she gave the entire staff the morning off or she sent them outdoors to do chores with the idea that she would be alone with Joseph. And she actually physically grabbed him, held on to him. She pleaded with him and still he rejected her. Though this time he didn't try to talk to her at all. He just tore himself away and ran out of the house. But she held on to his cloak, his jacket. She sat there after he left holding on to his jacket. Having no principles herself, She couldn't understand anyone who did. He didn't make sense to her. The fact that he wouldn't even talk to her enraged her. She felt stupid. She felt rejected. Suddenly, she started shouting for the household staff. When they came running, she showed them Joseph's jacket and said, this Hebrew, isn't it interesting how people get racist when they get hurt? This Hebrew tried assaulting me. 
but when I screamed for help, he left his jacket and ran. When her husband came home, she's still holding the jacket. And she told him the same story. And the text says he burned with anger. Now, it doesn't say who he was angry with. And I don't think it was Joseph. I think he was angry with his wife. I think he was furious with her. He knew her. If he had really believed her, he would have had Joseph, a slave, put to death on the spot. Rape was a capital crime. And slaves were executed for far less. Potiphar was angry because he knew his wife and knew what she'd done. He was angry because he was about to lose the best employee he ever had. The guy who was making him a fortune. But what could he do about it? To do nothing would be a major social embarrassment. Everyone in Pharaoh's court would know. It'd be a scandal. He would be a laughing stock. Unless he did something, everyone would know that his wife was unfaithful to him and that he knew she was unfaithful to him. But to execute Joseph? I mean, that just turned his stomach. Besides that, he liked Joseph. So instead of executing him, he had him put in the same penal complex where the government kept his political prisoners. It was a very odd place to be a foreign slave accused of attempted rape. Now remember, God's writing a long story of rescue and healing, and Joseph has an important part to play in it. But even though Joseph kept to the author's storyline, the plot was once again unraveling because of choices that people made. Joseph was trying to do everything right because, these are St. Peter's words, he was conscious of God, but he still got hammered. It was bad enough being sold into slavery. It was even worse being thrown into a dungeon. All totaled, Joseph spent 13 years of his life either as a slave or as a prisoner because of the bad choices other people made. Would God be able to incorporate this latest glitch, this terrible injustice into his story and somehow make it come out right? Now, Joseph's in prison. I've been in a few prisons. I know some of you have worked in prison. Some of you have probably been in prison. I've been in a few prisons, and hearing those big doors close every time, it is a sound I do not like. And I always expect to be going back out in an hour or two. Joseph didn't know whether he would ever get out. He must have felt like he hit bottom there. People in AA often say that until a person hits bottom, he's probably not going to change. Joseph hit bottom again and again, and each time the bottom was lower than the last time. I'm sure as he sat in prison, but he didn't get to sit. He had to work. But in prison, his mind ran up and down over the past. If only his mom hadn't died when he was 10. If only his dad hadn't placed him into management. If only he hadn't talked to his brothers the way he had. If only he hadn't met that stranger in Shechem. If only, if only, could even God do anything with the if-onlys in life? But verse 21 says that the Lord was with Joseph in prison. In fact, the Bible keeps repeating that line. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. The Lord was with Joseph. Other people could see it readily enough. I'm not sure Joseph could. Or maybe I'm not sure that I could if I were in his place. If Joseph did know the Lord was with him, I wonder how he felt about it. In light of all the terrible things that happened to him, 
Might he not, as someone suggested, ask the Lord to go be with somebody else? Lord, how about being with one of my brothers for a while? And you know, you can't blame Joseph for feeling that way. Lord, if you're really with me, is this the best you can do? He couldn't understand why this was happening to him or how what was happening could ever work out for good. He couldn't understand, but he could trust. If a person only trusts God when he understands God, he will never trust God. Joseph couldn't understand, but he could trust. In prison, Joseph was given a great deal of latitude, which is interesting. Uh, Perhaps Potiphar instructed the warden that he should be given latitude. The warden learned to trust him and was soon entrusting him with responsibility. And those responsibilities brought him into contact with some notable prisoners. Remember, this facility housed political prisoners. He met the king's cupbearer. That might not sound like much, but in all the ancient world, the cupbearer was a very prominent position. And he met the king's baker. And we don't know why these guys were in prison. Perhaps they were suspects in some kind of conspiracy ring. Or perhaps they brought dinner late to Pharaoh one night. Whatever they'd done, together or separately, they had angered Pharaoh, and that was not a good thing to do. So here they are in the same prison at the same time that Joseph is there. Another coincidence? One morning, these two men awakened, same morning, from very odd, very important feeling dreams. And because they had a relationship with Joseph now, they told him about them. In the ancient world, especially in Egypt and Mesopotamia, dream interpretation was a highly respected skill. It was both an art and a science. There were books written about it, and its practitioners would consult those books that were filled with dream typology in order to rightly interpret dreams. So in the Bible, when you have someone going to a certain group of people, usually priests, asking for an interpretation to a dream, what they would do is try to find similar things happening in other dreams in their dream books in order to interpret them. But when Joseph heard the men's dreams, he didn't need a dream book. The meaning of the dreams was apparent to him because God revealed it to him. The cupbearer was going to be released from prison and returned to his former prominent position. But the baker would be beheaded and his body impaled as a warning to anyone who might think about crossing Pharaoh. What Joseph told them came true, and it came true very quickly, three days. The cupbearer was released and restored to his office. The baker was beheaded and impaled. Before the cupbearer was freed, though, Joseph begged him, Only remember me when things are going well with you again. Tell Pharaoh about me and get me out of this place. I was kidnapped from the land of the Hebrews, and since I've been here, I've done nothing to deserve being put in this hole. When the messengers from the palace arrived three days after the dreams, arrived with signed papers, releasing the cupbearer, Joseph's hopes must have soared. He must have thought, man, I'm going to be out in a day or two. Or at least by a week. But a day or two went by, then a week or two, then a month or two, then a year or two, and Joseph was completely forgotten. That might have been the bottom of the bottom. Joseph had never felt more helpless. 
And it wasn't because things got worse. They didn't really get worse. It was because things didn't get better when he was absolutely sure that they were going to. After the two men's dreams, Joseph suddenly thought, I can see what God's up to. And he began finishing God's sentences for him. And that meant finishing his sentence in this horrible place. But it didn't happen. It didn't happen, and he was sure that it would. You ever been sure of what your future held? Oh, I know what's going to happen. When I graduated from college, got a job, went to a denominational, uh, de- to our denomination, was licensed, I was going to be a missionary in a Latin American country where my gifts in education would coalesce. And Karen was a missions major. We were married now. Then one day, the uh, representative from the denomination's missions agency told us, you're not what we're looking for. I was absolutely stunned. You know, it's funny. Joseph could predict the future for other people, for the cupbearer, for the baker. He wasn't able to predict the future for himself at all. He sat in that prison, that dungeon, for two more years, two years. And then one night, totally outside his control, Pharaoh had a dream. He had two dreams, really. Very odd, very important feeling dreams. And that changed everything. So Joseph spent two more years in prison. And you think, what a waste. But God doesn't waste anything. Hear that. God doesn't waste anything. We may waste, I'm sure we do, waste what he gives us. He never wastes anything we give him. We can give him our strengths, our gifts, our intelligence, and he'll put them to good use. But we can also give him our disappointments, our trials, our fears, and he'll put them to good use too. We can even give him our failures and other people's failures toward us, and he will turn them into something useful for that great story that he's writing. Joseph spent 13 years in some form of captivity. Whether he could see it or not, God was at work the entire time. He was working in people and in places Joseph didn't know anything about. But more importantly, he was working in Joseph himself. See, the Joseph who was sold into slavery was not capable of organizing a massive relief effort that would save thousands, maybe tens of thousands of people's lives. Even the Joseph in prison who interpreted the cupbearers and baker's dreams, wasn't ready for that task. He had to grow into that man. Joseph's experiences disciplined him. The author of Hebrews writes, no discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace. Don't miss that last line. For those who have been trained by it. Joseph was trained by it. His experiences taught him patience, taught him people. They strengthened his mind and body to endure hardship and misunderstanding. They instilled in him a determination to do the right thing even when no one was looking. They taught him to say yes to God. They taught him to say no to sin. As odd as it seems, Joseph thrived in captivity. He grew there. 
in a situation he could only have hated and despised beforehand. See, it's not a person's situation that determines whether or not he'll thrive. But that person's connection to God, I've seen it over and over again. People dying of some disease which they could only have hated and despised beforehand testify that they are happy and more fulfilled than they've ever been in their lives. A person loses his job and his security and somehow finds himself and his family because he's found or he's been found by God. Here's what you must believe, that God is at work right now. I don't know what your situation is like, but God is at work right now. He has not forgotten you. Can the woman forget the baby to whom she's given birth, to whom she gives milk at her breast? Yes, she may forget. But God says, I will not forget you. I will not forget you. I have engraved you on the palms of my hands. Don't let your situation alter your trust in God. Let your trust in God alter your situation. And more importantly, let it alter you. That means you must choose to trust God in your current situation. It's not going to happen by accident. You choose to trust. That is, you choose to entrust yourself, your dreams, and even your pain to him. And don't wait until you understand what God is doing. If you wait to understand God, you will never trust him. Don't trust him because your situation is good. Don't trust him because you're good. Trust him because he's good, because he's trustworthy. Trust him because he gave his only son. And he's not going to let anything stop him from making this story come out right. Let's pray. God, grow us. We are weak and frail and not ready for the tasks you have for us. So grow us strong. And by your grace, help us to trust even when we can't see, even when we don't understand. In other words, Lord, help us to trust right now. In Jesus' name, amen.